Joan Esposito. Live, Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. That is true. I will be with you this entire week on Joan's show. Joan returns Monday the 8th. And I'm just keeping the seat warm, keeping the mic going for Joan. But we're going to have some fun this week. Uh, if you're just kind of taking things easy in the new year, uh, welcome back. If you are back to the grind, good luck. <laughs> Um, you can find me, by the way, T-U-R-I, Rider, like the truck, on my socials or my podcast if you're wondering where this woman has come from. Speaking of women coming, there's one going. Claudine Gay, president of Harvard, just announced her resignation under pressure, under fire. We do have a Chicago-Illinois connection to that. The president of the board of Harvard is our very own Penny Pritzker. And some are calling on her to resign or for the board to be the board is already um, if if I've been following the news up to the minute here, the board had already voted to expand. It's a small board by elite university standards. Um, and, and it uh, was determined by the board that they should expand. Most of the board, as you might imagine, are expected to be what we call in the world I came from, big givers. Um, that would be the Harvard Corporation. But uh, I'm wondering what you think. What do you think of the resignation of Dr. Gay? The official party line is that it was her scholarship where allegations of plagiarism were bubbling up in a lot of places where you'd be surprised to find them. Who brought these allegations to the public attention? A conservative education activist. It's all very soupy. It's all very cloudy. And what about this idea that the education of people at Harvard, arguably one of, if not the most lauded institution, academic institution in this country, is certainly one of the top ten, top five by anybody's estimation. What about the idea that you can be taken down for political reasons? It's supposed to be a non-political job. And the official party line is that it was academic considerations. But do you think it really was? And if it was political considerations, is that valid? Is that reasonable? And just how political? And I think if you start at the most extreme, like if it all all of a sudden turned out that uh, Dr. Gay was a member of an extremist group herself advocating a violent overthrow of the United States government, um, people might have something to say about that. If it turned out she was part of a racist organization herself, I, th- I think that might disqualify her. But what about that middle area where you just sort of allow things to happen? 
What about when you show up at a congressional hearing and you can't say that calling for the death of a particular ethnic group of people is not going to be tolerated on your campus? Should you be allowed to call for the death of a particular group of people with no consequence? Some say, yeah, you know, that's your right. That's your freedom of speech. It's very difficult. I The first time you come across this issue where freedom of speech means supporting something that you find completely deplorable, objectionable, disgusting, you come smack up against your values, smack up against your sense of what is right and proper in this country. So should that have done it? Should we be should we be attributing all of the cause for Dr. Gay's resignation to her academic work or realistically do we all know now that it is more than that? If it had just been her academic work, would she still be president of Harvard? Your thoughts? 773-763-WCPT. You can text or call. Curious to know what, what you think, given this news. Do you think to yourself, well, that'll teach you not to take a stronger stand on your campus against calls for violence against a group of people? That'll teach all of y'all, as my friend from my friends from Kansas, where I'm from, would say that. That'll teach all of y'all to mind your self. And, and of course, there's also the issue of what you're allowed to say in some places and what you're allowed to say in other places. The campus of Harvard, that's quasi-public. The first time this issue came up for me was um, the the genuinely revolting prospect of a Nazi march through, at that time, the heavily Jewish suburb of Skokie. And I had always been a supporter of the ACLU. And I had to decide, did I really want to hang in there as the ACLU continued to support people's right to march and speak, even if what they had to say was disgusting. And that year, I wrote my first check, cringing as I wrote it. My beginning wages as a radio person, my little tiny paycheck, I wrote a check to the ACLU because I believed in my soul that people had a right to be as ugly as they are in public. Do you have a right to go and do that in private? Do you have a right to physically threaten people? That's a whole different thing. It's one thing to to carry signs through the street advocating your position. It's another thing uh, to go to a private educational institution and call for the murder of a group of your fellow students. And it's very difficult to sort it out. And at what point does that call for murder in general, as Dr. Gay testified in her Senate hearing, uh, when it crosses into action? What's action? 
When you block somebody's access to the library because you're calling for their murder, when you block their access to classes with a sign that calls for their murder, when you genuinely create such a hostile atmosphere, I mean, think back, think back to the, the kids who integrated their high schools in the South in the civil rights era. Does spitting at someone? Well, that's for sure an action. Does simply hurling racial epithets at them create enough of a danger to them that you could be arrested if that were happening now? Feel free to text your thoughts, 773-763-WCPT. And while you're at it, what do you really think is the reason Dr. Gay is stepping down? I would say... Um, looking at it and not not having had hours and hours to think about it, because this news is fresh to you, fresh to me, um, it would seem like we're looking at a combination, like those ice cream cones that are half chocolate, half vanilla, the soft serve ones. I'd say about half of it's political and about half of it is scholarly. And the combination was just more than... Uh, the board could stomach. And there was also uh, recently a meeting with some faculty and members of the board where the faculty said, you, you guys are messing this up. You are wrecking this opportunity to steer the university in a good direction. Harvard is... Strangely, one of the more arrogant institutions, and I say this with great love in my heart for some of my friends who are alumni, but for example, Harvard's endowment is so huge that they could afford to make tuition free for everybody, forever. But they don't. Instead, their efforts to... uh, make the campus more accessible to all different groups, cause those groups to have to jump through all kinds of hoops of fire. Because they're Harvard and they can. And a friend of mine, who is in fact a Harvard alum, um, and who had an illustrious career in academia, and who decided that his calling in his later working life was to teach kids who had limited opportunities in science and physics and math. And so he moved to a school district where those programs are harder to access. He had some stern words for his alma mater when they offered a scholarship to a promising student, but didn't support her with any kind of budget for housing or food, as if you could go to Harvard and sort of suspend yourself in some kind of soap bubble unless you were going to class. That's the kind of arrogance. Do, do you do you think that this kind of upheaval may teach some of these institutions a lesson? I'm doubtful. Carrying on the way that they have is likely to continue. But what does it mean to you if a conservative activist can essentially start lobbying data, apparently valid data, and get the president of Harvard to resign. What does that mean? 
for the future of academic institutions, especially the elite ones. And we saw the first the first round in Pennsylvania, and that was essentially a bunch of very, very wealthy donors saying, you know what? Screw your donations. We're not giving. And Harvard has had something of the same, although their boycott of donating has been, uh, in my opinion, a little cleverer. They said to all the big donors, just give a dollar so that the institution doesn't know that, uh, so that the institution knows um, that you didn't forget. You're just not gonna. Maybe that was part of the reason. How much should wealthy donors have to say about who runs their universities, their alma maters? How much should wealthy alumni have to say about it? What if you got a bunch of really conservative alumni and you want to have an open and in the classic sense liberal institution? Then what? 17 minutes after 2 o'clock, I'm Turi Ryder, in for Joan Esposito. Your thoughts are welcome as you shake off the New Year's torpor and get your mind going. We are live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. 18 minutes after 2 o'clock, Turi behind the mic. Andy behind the buttons, Julia Shu behind it all. Uh, we are glad to welcome you back in the new year, 773-763-WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. That's the number to call or text. Coming up in the show today, you will have an opportunity to meet one of the curators of the Faith Ringgold exhibit. She's a civil rights activist artist. She has made her statements in her works in fabric, in every other media you can think of. She's in her 90s now. I think she's 93. And there is a retrospective going on in Chicago. We'll be talking to one of the curators of that show. Also, um, an interesting confluence of events, one of Chicago's most activist theater companies, activist in terms of casting and directing and uh, playwrights that they that they stage in the name of diversity and accessibility, uh, has been moved from its traditional home uh, due to the migrant crisis. <laughs> we'll talk about their upcoming season. That's going to be coming up. Uh, also, gerrymandered voting in Wisconsin uh, is that, I mean, Wisconsin was just one of the worst. That may go away. And we'll talk to uh, president of the SEIU, the government workers of Wisconsin, about that. So many things going on here today. And that's just a few of them. But if you would like to uh, weigh in on the resignation slash firing of Dr. Claudine Gay from the board of Harvard, I would encourage you to do that right now. I'm working on getting a hold of a a friend of mine who is a department chair and and a Harvard alum. Um, Actually, that may be a lie. I think she may have gone partway through Harvard Divinity and transferred to Yale. But we'll talk to her about what exactly is involved in the plagiarism allegations, if we can get her today. If not today, we'll work on tomorrow. And and let's talk a little bit, by the way, while we're on the subject of this academic freedom, let's talk a little bit about tenure and the effort that's being made to 
abolish tenure in institutions of higher learning. That's a big one for the conservatives, abolishing tenure. If you're not familiar with tenure, essentially what it means is there's almost no way on this planet that you can lose your job. And the reasoning behind that was exactly the sort of thing you're seeing now in Florida, for example, where the governor has changed the board of one of the universities there, the liberal arts small school, and uh, he's trying to make it a sports-based program, not a liberal arts-based program, and they're coming up with all kinds of rules about what you can and cannot teach there, and they cannot touch the professors who have tenure. They cannot. But a lot of them are leaving anyway because of the books that are being banned and the courses are being um, stopped. This came from the text line. Dr. Gay would need 91 judicial charges against her including counts regarding an insurrection against the U.S. government while running for U.S. president while actively urging hate and dissension among Americans to feel job security. She never got close. A little cynicism from our wonderful um, listeners. Yeah, you get to keep your job if you're mounting an insurrection, apparently. Or at least you get to apply for it again and possibly be rehired. Good point. As objectionable as I found some of what Dr. Gay had to say, I'll just tip my hand, as as objectionable as I found a lot of what Dr. Gay had to say to the Congress during her hearing um, under her questioning by a Harvard alumna, by the way, um, Elliot Stefanik of New York, who I think, by the way, is a couple bubbles off plum. Never have I. We can I just di- digress here for a minute. There are a lot of Republicans who Liz Cheney has been pointing out start started out um, with some ethics, maybe a little spine, and seem to have been shoved completely into the land of functioning with no spine in the wake of the Trump presidency. Stefanik is one of one of the best examples of that. She actually, do you know, this is going to make sense in a minute. Do you remember uh, seventh grade biology where they explained that one of the gifts of the earthworm was that you could cut it in half and instead of having dead earthworm, you had two earthworms because it could function with only half of itself? Elise Stefanik seems to be right there in the earthworm category. She can function with only half of herself. The moral half, the part that used to be a moderate Republican, that's gone. But she seems to have continued crawling along. And she really grilled the Ivy League presidents, including Dr. Claudine Gay. And she was right up in her face. And it didn't make Dr. Gay look good to America. But I have to say that I think Dr. Gay had a point. And I say this as someone who is the last person who would ever advocate for genocide of a group of people or massacring a group of people or death to any group of people or for that matter, in most cases, the death of any one person. And yet, 
you can the fact that Stefani could lure these presidents in, the fact that no one had prepared them for what she might do, that was the thing to me that weighed most heavily against all these presidents who testified. They seemed to have built their careers with no sense of politics. They seemed to have built their careers with no idea about how things look in the world. They seem to have been glass encased to the point where it's one thing to be right. It's another thing to look like you have a moral ground to stand on. I've heard their answers described as lawyerly. May I say that in the context of presenting yourself to the American public, that is not a compliment, lawyerly. If somebody says, well, your answer was lawyerly, and the question was, should people be allowed to call for the killing of a group of students on your campus and your answer can be described as lawyerly, you've not done a good job of presenting your your case. Now, to be fair, Stefanik was right on it. I mean, she really... If anybody thinks that she doesn't know what she's doing, they are misjudging her. She was right in their face. Well, can't you say yes or no? She was lawyerly for that matter. Very, very lawyerly. She was also a pit bull. And that's the better tack. These presidents, when they spoke, Dr. Gay in particular, should have begun with all kinds of statements about their personal views, the conversation that needed to be had, the places where speech was appropriate on their campus, and not, yeah, let's talk about when we can call for killing a whole group of people. It's weird. My aunt used to have an expression for this. She used to say, smart, 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 dumb. All these people, they're a bunch of smarties, all of them. Very smart. Just not so smart. Let's go to Richard. Welcome, Richard. Thanks oh, for hi. joining yeah. us. Yeah. Hello. Yes. Yeah. yeah, hi. Thanks. You know, I wanted to comment on that, you know. I don't think it's an indictment of the presidents of those institutions and more on the people that are listening to the, you know, us. Because... Uh, what do we all expect? That would give some some answer. You, you remember when Dukakis was asked about uh, uh, what? How would he feel if his wife was killed? And he gave this answer, and they shot him down. You know, as, as for as a president amongst a couple good of other. Good point. Uh, Same problem. Uh, yes, good point. Same problem. Yeah, and unawareness of of how what you say will play with the public. Exactly. Yes. Well, well, they shouldn't have answered. Asked an intelligent person about it, I guess. You know, I mean, in the sense of a certain kind of intelligence. I mean, she was tr- uh, treading a line. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I mean, could she really get a word in with Stefanik uh, shooting her mouth off? And someone ought to ask Stefanik, "Give me a yes or no about slavery, like Nikki Haley." Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let, know, let's. I'd like let's... to hear them. Let's unpack what you just said. You're right. Stefanik was right in her face, and there's a way to deal with that. There's a way to deal with that. And the way that you deal with that is you stop, you pause, you say, that's not really the question you're asking, is it? 
That's not, or you don't even have to have the is it. That's not really the question you're asking. You turn it right around. That's not really what you're looking for. Let's talk about what you really want to hear and where I stand on that issue. And you, you do what any smart politician does. You change the focus. It, Stefanik can be in their faces as much as they want going, this should be easy. This should be yes or no. And your answer is, every time, the answer is wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. But these women, these presidents, somebody didn't school them. If you ask that question to someone who really knows their stuff, they will give a better lawyerly answer, which is essentially right back in your face. So you're correct. If everyone in the public were Harvard-trained lawyers, her her answer would have played better. But they didn't know their audience, and that's a grave mistake. There's what's right, there's what's wrong, and there's what is. And what is is that that segment was going to play to everybody in this country, even people who couldn't come near Harvard with a a 400-foot barge pole. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I totally agree. I mean, she, she wasn't uh, schooled in that, but you know, it's also part of this anti-intellectualism in this country, and it goes back to many, many presidents. You know, if anybody was smart, I mean, they went for Bush. You know, and he, 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 put, he and Reagan uh, made the hay by uh, or survived and were applauded for being ignorant. And yeah. uh, you get a Dukakis in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's just America. So I, yeah, I'm very much on the side of those uh, presidents because that you know I would like to hear a nuanced question. I mean, it's just a it is a complicated uh, problem. Uh, Anti-Semitism, racism are have complications to them, and they were, you know, it's, it's, I, I appreciate a less than simplistic answer. You know, so I, I'm totally uh, I'm, I'm I'm sick of the press doing this and not holding, uh, let's say, some of these other politicians who can't answer whether the president is the president of the United States, uh, being Biden, you know, that's a yes or no, too, but you can't get it out of them, but they're still Well, that, that's, that's for different reasons. That's, that's not because there's nuance to it. That's because they're in the grips of a paranoid and misinformed cabal. That's a different deal altogether. That's because they want to it, not become Liz public. Cheney. You're okay. So here's I'll give you my girlfriend's favorite expression on this. There's what's right. There's what's wrong. And there's what is. And all of these folks <laughs> need to be clear about what really is. And, and I thank you for calling WCPT and raising these excellent points. 231 in a moment. We're going to hear about a great. Uh, well, we haven't. Ta- we tried to talk to her last week. A great approach if you're dating in the new year. A great approach to vetting the person you may be dating. We're going to try again to speak with Lara Morris Starr, who has uh, who has taken it on herself to develop a movement of what she calls sister exes. It's two thirty one WCPT. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. Yes, I am. And I am pleased to be able to tell you that tomorrow we will have the chair of the history department of Rutgers University of Newark with us to talk a little bit about tenure, what it means, doesn't mean. I just got hold of her. She's on a train, so she can't talk to us today. Um, the person who you are about to meet took a really interesting approach to dating. 
and we tried to speak with her before, but now she's on a landline. So if you're planning to do some dating in the new year, you may want to check out the blog of Lara Morris Starr, who is um, fomenting support for a movement of what she calls Sister Exes, which was born of her own experience. Welcome back, Lara. Oh, Tori, thanks so much for having me on. Now, just start from the beginning. You you had been, and I'll just catch people up a little bit. You were married sure. for a long time and, and became I, widowed. And mm-hmm. then you entered the dating market and met what you thought was a fabulous guy. And then what happened? And then what happened? We were together for off and on for about five years. And we broke up. I thought because his drinking was not something I was comfortable with. He, um, it just wasn't, I'm hesitant to diagnose somebody as an alcoholic. I'm not a clinician. I will just say the way he drank was not something I wanted to live with or marry or have in my life in a more significant way than dating. And that was what I thought was the story of our relationship. And then? And then, (laughs) earlier this year, I very randomly at a goth fest in Vallejo, California, of all places, ran into his ex-girlfriend who he was with before we met. Um, And I knew she lived in that town in Vallejo. I knew what she looked like because I had done my typical sort of, hmm, wonder what the ex is like. Don't we all? Don't we all? We all do. We all do. And I saw her go into a cafe and I was like, I need to, I need to connect with her. And it was like a movie. I got up from the outside table. I opened the door to the cafe. She came walking right towards me. I said, Susan. And she kind of looked at me and I said, are you the Susan who dated Chris? I dated him after you. And she said, yes. And then she looked at me put her hand on my shoulder and said, I'm so glad you're okay. And I was like, what does she mean by that? Uh-huh. So you guys sat down and had a long talk. We did. We had, um, at that meeting at the cafe, we sort of chatted, but of course she was very caught off guard and very ambushed, even though you know she was very, very nice. And I left that very brief encounter at the cafe think, with the feeling like this must be what like feels like when two Vietnam veterans connect, <laughs> like they've both been through something that only they understand. Uh-huh. And so we had a three hour phone call and a three hour dinner. And again, one of the first things she said to me was, he didn't tell you he owned that house in Santa Barbara, did he? And I'm like, yeah, he did. He told me he owned it and he sold it in his divorce and he gave the proceeds to his ex-wife. He even showed it to me when we were down there. And she said, no, he never owned that house. And that just led to more and more and more lies, lies, lies that big lies, little lies, scary lies that I had absolutely no idea about during during our relationship. So you decided, given this, that you were going to start, in, in, to use computer or phone language, you were going to start scrolling back in order to see if there were signs that you could have known about or should have known about mm-hmm. um, at, before even you made your own decision and before you met this ex before yours. How did that go? 
Oh, it was, it was like, I, I described it as like Alice going through the looking glass. Like I was going down that rabbit hole, just sort of grabbing onto things and like, well, what about this? And what about that? And Susan, um, my first of several sister exes who I met in this process, was incredibly generous with her time as I was, you know, sort of che- checking with her like, well, what did this and what did he say about this? And, you know, I realized, as I think a lot of us do, the signs were sort of there in retrospect, but when you keep it all to yourself, you have no one to bounce it off of, no one to confirm. You're you're sort of doing it on your own, and it's very, very difficult. So the story I'm here to tell, and I really appreciate you bringing me on, is it's not about my cheating, lying ex. I mean, we've all got those. Right. <laughs> That's not news. Unfortunately, is, yes, yes. I know, right? What is... What I really want to talk about, and you prefaced when you introduced me, is the concept of sister exes, of women who are the only ones who really understand your story, really understand what you are going through um, after this relationship, and sort of confirm and upheld and validate um, that experience for you, which I'm very grateful I had. There's a little sort of backstory to that, too, um, if, if I can talk about that. Sure. And this is something that people who are, you know, getting ready to date in 24, which I really hope you do. This is not, I'm not intending to discourage anybody from dating or online dating or finding love. I want that to happen for everybody. But about four months, three or four months after um, I met Chris and we started dating, I'm sitting at work <laughs> in the middle of the day and I get an email from an acquaintance that says, Laura, this is very strange, but a mutual friend has asked me if she can send you some information about the guy you're dating that she wants you to have. And I'm like, what lifetime movie am I in? <laughs> like, I'm just a normal person dating what I thought was a good guy. We were having a lot of fun. I didn't have, and you know, we all meet people who we think are creepy or who just give, you know, put us on edge. My spidey sense picked up none of that. And I thought, yes, I want to know anything that um, somebody wants to tell me. And I got an email sort of detailing all of these things from his past that, you know, that again, about the drinking, um, DUIs, about being abusive to an ex-wife, about potentially wanting to move in with me quickly so he didn't have to pay for his own housing, and a few other things. And I'm reading that like, again, I'm a normal person. Who is this? What am I? What movie am I in? And it took six years and that chance meeting in Vallejo to find out that it was Susan, who had sent me that email in an attempt to sort of warn me in a way that sort of protected her own boundaries and identity and process that she was in at the time, but she really did it to help a sister out, and unfortunately, I believed everything he told me, that it was a vindictive ex, and why would I want to do this, and you already know about this, and da-da-da. right, let let me pause you here for a second. Sure. So you dismissed the the well-intentioned, good uh, information that you were given, and you're proposing that... Women commonly contact, if they can, if they know of a bad apple, that mm-hmm. they, they commonly get in touch with the next uh, woman or man in line and say, look, this is uh, the American version of the Nigerian prince swindle. Um, right. <laughs> you, you need to know. Knowing what you know now, how realistic do you think it would be that somebody would take that information seriously? 
You know, that is a very good question. And Susan and I have since discussed it. And she said, you know, what would it have taken for you to take that seriously? And I said, you know, if I had had a chance to ask questions or chat with you or the things that were in the email that didn't sort of make sense to me, that in retrospect they now do, I really like to think that 2017 Lara would have said, uh-uh, goodbye, and <laughs> walked away. I, would I have? You know, I'm a human, and that is a very good point. And I was infatuated and all those things. What I have learned is that those sorts of emails are not done lightly by the people who do them. <laughs> they, and that it is something to, they don't happen often. And when they do, it is something to very, very much take seriously. And, um, and I wish I had. Well, let's, okay. I, I'm, I'm sure that you do because you spent <laughs> a lot of time with a guy who was, I mean, at the very least, and I can say this, given what you've described, a raging alcoholic, which is a disease of dishonesty, if nothing else. But yes. let's 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 flip this around and say, what if the perpetrator is someone who wants to blacken someone else's reputation? Could this tool for sharing information on, you know, by contacting someone, by putting up a website, could this as easily be misused by what your then significant other called a vindictive ex. How do you know if the person committing the um, information assault is the romantic partner or the ex? Yeah, it is. It's a fair question. And um, again, in my my experience, the if you are going to make the effort to reach out to the person, um, you know, make sure you have screenshots, make sure you have a set, you know, make sure you have evidence so the person who is going to be looking for reasons not to believe you has an opportunity to believe you. And if you are on the receiving end of a communication like this, you know, really apply some critical thinking and assess does this seem like somebody who wants to ruin this person's life or does this seem like somebody who wants to protect me from ruining mine? And, you know, I'm not going to say it's going to work out every single time. You know, people are people, but I'm, I'm very confident that if you apply both of those filters, you will make better decisions than I did. Huh. I think you have a lot more confidence in people than I do. I I have to go back um, 30, more than 30 years. I've been married almost three decades, um, Mm -hmm. as you were married for many, 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 many years. Um, But back when I was dating the bad news guy, you know, Mm -hmm. before the therapy, uh, when I was dating the bad news guy, I could literally, you could have shown me pictures of of him misbehaving. (laughs) Uh, I I, I mean, I found letters, I found all kinds of, and and, and there was always an explanation, which I was always prepared to believe. You have an interest in creating something called Sister X's, but I mm-hmm. suffered from what I call lion tamer syndrome. <laughs> Tell lion, me more about that. Lion tamer syndrome is where you believe you're the only person who can go in the cage with the very dangerous yet beautiful and exotic lion. The, oh, yeah. The lion would eat anybody else who came in the yes. cage. Anybody else would be in grave danger, but not you somehow. Yes. You are yes. exempt. You have the magic secret. You are the Siegfried and Roy who can yes. manage to get this dangerous person to behave nicely. 
and to do all the right things. So I'm not sure where this movement for sister wives crashes into lion tamer syndrome, (laughs) but I, if it were, if it were I or many other people who are going to be dating, if you're Mm going to be dating in 2024 Mm -hmm. and, you know, barring some unforeseen event in my household, I I hope Mm -hmm. not to be, but you know, I used to be that person, new year, new rules, new dating, new criteria. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how I would I would be able to say. Well, he may have been bad news for all of you other people. She or sure. you know she might have been bad, but for me, I have this special <laughs> magic Tinkerbell fairy dust, and it's all going to be great. Yeah. Have you thought? I'm about that? yes. I'm not going to not deny. I also had more than a little lion tamer syndrome. He just hasn't met me yet. Totally get that especially when you're in that first few months and you're so excited. And these guys make you think that because of the things they say. And so so two things about that. One, yeah, people are people, and not everybody is going to listen when they're warned. I understand. But if you have at least tried, and then maybe someday when the bubble is burst, and you can go back to that person and say, I'm sorry I didn't listen to you. Can we talk now? That is what Sister X's are for. Ah. Or, right? And, for, or for the if, healing process. Exactly. Exactly. The I warning, see. you're right, that, that may or may not happen. Although I did have a girlfriend who was dating a new guy during, when I was right around all this time this was happening. And she said, if there is anybody in his past who has anything I should know, speak now. Like, I want to know before I get too far in. So So it really depends on the person and situation. But really, yes, what has been so helpful to me about Susan and the other sister exes I have connected with is, is is that healing, is that validation, is that this is, you know, they're awesome, cool, feminist, badass women. <laughs> None of us are shrinking violets. And to know that they were also caught up in this swirl has been extremely helpful and healing for me. The other thing I want to say is um, with me, he was never, ever, ever physically, uh, never, I was never physically abused or in any physical danger once during our entire relationship. That was not a feature nor um, was any financial exploitation part of our part of our relationship at all. Well, um, so, it could yeah. have been if you had linked your star with his. Pun uh, you intended. know, it it absolutely is within the realm of possibility. Given what why what, what I know about him now, I just want to be very clear sure. that that it, that it, that, it, that it wasn't okay in, in so let's let's explore what about since you're being very clear about what did and did not happen <laughs> sure. have any lawyers come to you since you started this sister, sister x campaign and said you better be careful because if you actually say something about someone and you can't back it up you could find yourself on the hook for a lot of damage you know, I addressed this in my Substack, um, which is where I've been writing about this. Um, and there's still a couple more chapters to go. I, I hope your listeners will will log in and um, and read it. And I made the choice to use his real name, not his last name, his real first name. I made the choice to anonymize the names of people with whom I am not in touch. And 
you know, if somebody wants to sue me for this, I will frickin' sell tickets to the <laughs> court. It sounds like you would welcome the chance. That does well, sound oh, like I it. would not go for it. Yes, I will absolutely, you know, I, I'm most people, you know, I, re- I did do a little sort of light digging on what the legalities of uh-huh. are writing your story and using real names and all those kinds of things. Uh-huh. And, you know, most people sort of don't recommend it, but part of this process for me is getting back all of the power that I didn't even know I was losing in our relationship. I'm not afraid of anybody. I'm not afraid of him. I'm not afraid of everything I have said is 100% true. And okay. and I'm not, I'm not concerned. So I, I am going to remind people that it's Lara Morris Star, L-A-R-A, and she does have a sub stack. Let me ask you to use your imagination and flip this mm-hmm. around. There are sure. a lot of guys and I knew I knew several of them who who have been who have had advantage of taken of them by uh, women who were not really interested in them who were interested mm-hmm. in what they could do what they could spend what they could buy sure. with, with this um, the jobs they could get with mm-hmm. with these men um, on their arm as it mm-hmm. were what advice or or hope would you have for the men. Because sure. for men, in a weird way, uh, there's the whole trope of, well, women are taken advantage of by men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that it, girls are cautioned. Be careful. A guy mm-hmm. could take advantage of you. He might not be who he seems to be. Better vet him carefully. But men are supposed to have all kinds of good judgment. Mm-hmm. What about the shame and the misery? And what about um, brother exes? How could you see that working? So I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and, and I want to say my sub stack is Lara Star, L-A-R-A-S-T-A-R-R dot substack dot com. And for those who don't know what a substack is, it's sort of a combination of blog and email newsletter. And when you sign up, you'll, you'll, if you want to subscribe, you can put your email in and you'll get a um, subscription. It's totally free. Or you can just read the posts online. And in terms of men, 100%, men are taken advantage of, men are bamboozled, men are lied to, men are cheated on all the time. And again, this isn't about people are cheated on and lied to. We know that. It happens to men and women. What I, would, what I don't see happening, and I would love for it to happen, is for men to rise up in brotherhood and support other men the way that these women support me, the way women support each other in all areas of our lives that I don't think happens for men in the same way. And I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of problems that result from that. So I absolutely encourage men to find and commiserate and with their um, brother exes, again, not in the spirit of tearing the women down, but in the spirit of building each other up. Yeah, I was so glad you put it that way, because as you were speaking, I was thinking about these horrifying hate groups, these incel movements, these mm-hmm. these men who are so furious. Some of them have really had really truly terrible experiences with women. And mm-hmm. for women, what you're describing is an easy thing to do to to take on a sisterhood feminist um, troubles sharing effort. Yes, but for men in our society, we are socialized in such a way that if something terrible happens to you at the hands of a woman, there's no place you feel you can go where you right. may not feel further emasculated by the process. 
So exactly. they just get it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing here, sure. but a lot of these guys just get angrier and angrier. Yes. And sometimes it results in horrific violence. I'm thinking of that, uh, San Diego, was it? The, the guy yes. just yes. horrifying. And it comes out in all kinds of other ways. It comes out in yes. political movements to, to make women go back to the way it used to be and, you know, put on these pioneer dresses and sit in kitchens making bread. <laughs> Look, if that's your thing, go for it. Right. But, um, it sounds like from your description that a lot more needs to happen before men have the liberty to reach out and say, I'm dating this woman and something doesn't quite add up or I'm dating this yes. new woman. She seems fabulous. Um, it used to be, and I mentioned this on the air the day that we didn't get to talk. There, mm-hmm. there was an effort and I don't know if it's, I, I looked, I made a cursory look through the internet and didn't find it. There used to be a site called Date My Ex, where uh, relationships mm-hmm. that hadn't worked out through no fault of the people involved, um, sure. you could get a good reference on somebody. Yes, I love that. Yeah, you know, a great guy, just geographically, un, you know, inaccessible, or a great guy, mm-hmm. but you know, not not going to be uh, financially independent for a while, and mm-hmm. I couldn't support both of us. Great guy, but, you know, there was a lot of that. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder if for men, instead of alerting each other to the the bad qualities of mm-hmm. the women they formerly dated, if what men need is a date my ex, maybe that's, mm-hmm. maybe that would do it. I don't know. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think you know, I, I'm in favor of anything that gets men closer to more honest feelings and connecting in brotherhood in a positive way. And to your point, um, you know, the women I'm in touch with, my, my sister exes, of which there are six now. Wow. We None of us are man-hating harpies. We all are dating. We're all happy. We all have great lives. Um, some of us are in relationships. So that's not what this is about. We don't turn into the woman version of incels. Good. And, I'm glad and to hear the, that. Yes. And the and to your point, and I, and I wrote about this in my substack, is yes, and this is, you know, the reason the, the you know the, the the patriarchy hurts everybody and the patriarchy is not men and the patriarchy is what keeps these men from forming those kinds of relationships from tapping into those kinds of feelings from offering each other that kind of support and fellas look around at the women around you we are offering examples of how to do that every single day and we are dying for you to do it as well I love that. I think we'll just leave it there and uh, re- recommend again that everybody check out Lara Star S T A R R. If you just Google her Substack Lara Star, you will find her and her journey of informing herself and others and the woman who was next in line. And I'll just leave that as the cliffhanger. Thank yes. you so much for being with us. It was great talking with you, and good luck with the. I, I shouldn't even just say good luck with that. You obviously have luck with that. So continued success with that. And I'll be reading it. Thank you so much, Tori. Thank you. It is 2.57. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive coming up. Oh, so many things coming up uh, in the show today. Among other people, you're going to get to meet someone who is really active in the anti-gerrymandering effort in our neighbor state. And more on WCPT. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. 
Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. What? She's back again? Yes, back again. And through Friday, we will hang out together on this wonderful progressive talk station. I'm the black sheep of the family, the mainstream Democrat of the family. Lord help you now. Um, my name is Turi with you, Rider Like the Truck. And you can find me even when I'm not here on my socials or my podcast. Just Google my name with whatever you want other than, you know, quits. You won't find that, I don't believe. Actually, there is one chapter in my book called No Job is Worth This. It talks about quitting. People say that Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy is quiet quitting his campaign. That's what they're saying. And then another columnist pointed out that Asa Hutchinson is still in the race for president. Remember him? Remember him, the governor, Arkansas Republican, Asa Hutchinson, remember him? He was, he's, he's had some things to say about President, former President Trump. He's still running. So we've got, still got, let's, let's, can you make your list of irrelevant Republican candidates? And don't be so cynical. Don't say all of them. Don't do that. Uh, who do you think should drop out now? Who should be just done for? There's a piece in, I think, Political about, a Politico about Asa Hutchinson and his campaign and how he's fighting it on principle and that he's not afraid to be embarrassed. So people have died for this country. Why should I be afraid of a political embarrassment? That may be, but you are a politician. So I agree with the MSNBC columnist who says it's time to get political about this and quit your campaign. If you are a true believing Republican, an anti-Trump Republican, it is time for for once. I have to say one of the best things about Joe Biden being our candidate for president this year is that we get to watch the Republicans eat their own. That's kind of fun. Haven't had a chance to do that in a while. Let's watch the Republicans eat their own. Because, frankly, the only Republican candidate that I would seriously be worried about would be Nikki Haley. I think she would give uh, President Biden a serious run for the money and might beat him. So if I were a Republican right now, I would be encouraging Ron DeSantis to quit. Vivek should just, I don't know, just Go make some more money somewhere. Asa Hutchinson, what principle exactly are you articulating now other than the we don't want Trump, which by virtue of the fact that every other person in the primary is running is a no brainer. All the people who are not Trump clearly think they would be better than Trump. Who do you think should be off the ballot, should be just resigning and throwing their support behind someone who isn't Trump? Who would be your nominees for the people who should go and why? Who would be the people who should go 
This text came in uh, concerning the Claudine Gay um, resignation, but I think it's apropos. Uh, Didn't Nikki Haley give a worse answer about slavery if she remains a viable candidate? Guess not being able to answer a simple question with a yes or no only applies to liberals and college presidents. No, Nikki Haley's badly damaged. Badly damaged. She may have blown herself up. And again, you know, that the question about free speech is never a simple yes or no. And nobody was asking Nikki Haley to give a simple yes or no to the Civil War question. She could have added slavery into her whole long answer. She could have actually given the same answer and included slavery. So I'm afraid that person who texted, you are full of baking powder. You're just mistaken. It wasn't really a simple question. It was a complicated question. People make tenure writing about the Civil War and all of its various causes and new data that comes to light and new research. No, it's not. But if you if you exclude slavery, there's the problem. There's the problem. Free speech, always complicated. You're not always allowed to say anything to anybody. As a talk show host, I used to regularly deal with all kinds of threatening mail and calls and stalkers. And I came smack up against what people could get away with. And I think the rules have changed now, but it used to be that unless you threatened to do a specific thing to someone in a specific time and place, it wasn't actionable for the police. That's changed some. That's changed in cases of domestic violence and restraining orders, and it's a whole complicated area. When are you allowed to call for somebody's murder? When are you allowed to say, well, I'm not calling for us to actually kill them. I'm just hoping that a spaceship lands on them and they're all squashed flat. That's really what I'm calling for. It's a, it's touchy, the free speech thing. And likewise, no one can say to these Republican candidates, oh, you should not be on the ballot. It's a, you know, it's a free country. <laughs> you make it to the ballot, you get to run. You get to run. And, of course, somebody texted me the predictable answer of who should resign from the ballot. All of them. I knew one of you would do that. I knew you would text me they should all, they should all quit. But in point of fact, to take, to take the reply that came in on the uh, text line, and you can join that text Text feed 773-763-9278 or 773-763-WCPT. You can also call that number and be part of the show. Um, To take it seriously, I want at the very least a two-party system. It makes us better when we have competition. It makes us better when we have people proposing other ideas. But what you have with Trump, of course, is not anybody proposing an idea. You just have people proposing fealty to a wannabe fascist dictator at any price. 
victory at the price of democracy is not what we're going for here. But a conversation amongst the party candidates, useful. I mean, I would I would be very interested in a debate to hear Nikki Haley face off against Joe Biden on the issue of immigration. I think Biden would probably do fine, but I'd like I'd like to have that opportunity, wouldn't you? I'd like to have the opportunity to actually hear uh, Chris Christie articulate a policy on union labor. I'd like to hear that, wouldn't you? I personally have a lot of confidence in Joe Biden. I think he's doing very well. I'd like to hear um, a group of, of a couple of candidates, maybe a third party candidate, articulate their position on aid for Ukraine, aid for Israel, negotiations with other countries concerning refugees, their refugees, our refugees, all of these international subjects. I'd like to hear conversation. Wouldn't you like to hear an actual conversation about environmental policy? When there's disagreement or alternate ideas, it gets better. But I am with these political writers in Politico and MSNBC and elsewhere who are saying, you know, it's time for some of these people to just gracefully bow out. And what it's telling me about, and I don't know if this is saying the same thing to you as it is to me, but do you look at their unwillingness to, how do you look at their unwillingness to leave? How do you interpret the fact that somebody with less than 1% of the vote in the polling Asa Hutchinson, is is still hanging in there. How do you interpret the fact that Ron DeSantis, who is crashing and burning like, uh, oh, all my analogies are disgusting. I'm not going to use them. They're just in bad taste. How do you look at, at Ron DeSantis in any other way than that he's a race car with his engine on fire? I mean, seriously, Put your flame-proof suit on and get out of the burning vehicle. Ron DeSantis, leave the burning vehicle. If Ron DeSantis' campaign were an airplane, I'd say, leave your purse, Ron. Slide down the little chute. Out you go. We don't want any harm to actually come to you, except electorally. What? What is the reason they're not quitting? Do you look at your news sources in the morning and listen to the the radio or or whatever podcasts and shake your head and think, well, why are they? Why haven't they quit for Pete's sakes? I'm kind of I, I try to have some kind of grasp on human behavior, but the species of politician that it takes to run for president, th- there is a place where I completely lack insight. I just, I mean, for starters, I can't imagine why anybody would run for president, really. To me, it just looks like six years of no sleep. Two running, four in office, six years, zero sleep. I would just open up a vein. I I like sleep too much to run for any high office. And yet somehow these folks look in the mirror and they think not only I should run for office, They think I will run for office and they think I'm going to win when I run for office. And that just boggles the mind. 
So I'm asking you to dig a little bit into your unofficial psychiatry box of tools and explain to me why these yahoos are still running when Donald Trump is clearly the candidate of choice. I suppose some of them may be thinking, oh, well, he'll be booted off the ballot. But even assuming that, a good half the field should just give it up now. I believe the phrase is unify behind one alternative candidate. And if they did, would that scare you? Would it? 773-763-WCPT is the number to call or to text. I'm curious to know which one you would most like to see abandon the field. I actually would like Chris Christie, I can't even say it, Chris Christie to leave before Asa Hutchinson. And the one, the one I would most like to see just bounce himself right off the playing field is Vivek Ramaswamy, who, as I said, there are some um, pundits speculating that he's basically quit. He's just showing up on TV because he likes to be on TV now. And have I told you my squirrel nutkin theory of Vivek Ramaswamy? Okay, if you've ever read the Beatrix Potter books, there's a character, Squirrel Nutkin. And Squirrel Nutkin jumps up and down asking ridiculous riddles and questions. That's what he does. He, he shows up everywhere his family goes, and they behave nicely. And Squirrel Nutkin jumps up and down posing ridiculous riddles until one day an owl eats him. That's kind of what I hope is going to happen to Vivek Ramaswamy in the not-too-distant future. Because he is. He's like squirrel nut, and he jumps up and down saying ridiculous things. The other candidates swat him around. Someone just needs to, like, eat him. And by the way, in the Beatrix Potter books, um, the way they figure out that he's been eaten is that the owl has a new doorbell pull, which looks a lot like Squirrel Nutkin's tail. So that that's how that works. Steve, welcome to WCPT. Hi. Hello. Sorry, I'm getting in the car. One moment. Sorry about that. You got to me very quickly. I um, did. So, yeah, you've already uh, Yes, you did. Thank you very much. You're uh, Happy New Year. And uh, I want to say a, a couple of points. So, yeah, you know, we sort of need to divide these people into camps. Okay, There are those who are seriously running for the nomination. There are those who are sort of running for the nomination but would accept VP in the hopes of landing the top spot four years from now. Others who hope to run now and establish their bona fides. You know, for people who don't pay attention to this sort of thing, uh, numerous presidents ran uh, a, a number of campaigns before they finally got the nomination. Well, Joe Biden so, is probably yeah, and, the very best example of that. He That guy exactly. had like a then, pit bull jaw and did not quit. That's true. Yes. Absolutely. And then others, quite frankly, you know, they want a gig on Fox or some other, you know, out, conservative outlet. And, you know, the, this is a great way to elevate their profile and that sort of thing. Keep in mind that Donald Trump got into the race in 2016 because he just wanted to elevate his profile and get a better deal with NBC. Yeah, that is he kind, of, that is kind of a dumbfounding, isn't it? Well, let me ask you then, oh, yeah. just just for kicks and giggles, does do you think that Fox would actually hire a Vivek Ramaswamy? I do. 
I actually do. I mean, you know, I, I think oh, he, he's got the kind of following. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a mini mini Trump. Let's face it. But, you know, no, uh, I, and, I think he's uh, even he's worse not, than Trump because he's actually yeah. smarter than Trump. So, yeah, and right. a little he, less he is in, Trumpian, but uh, but better educated, a little yeah. less yeah, entitled. Yeah, and you know, I still wish we were talking about Ivy League institutions. I wish they could rescind diplomas because Trump has a whole string of them that his father bought for him, and it just breaks my heart. And it's it just devaluates the currency there of the Ivy League degree. But okay, oh, so who absolutely. else is? And, and if I can, yeah, wait, no, no, no. Well, I, I want to ask you who who else do you think is? So so sort them out for me quickly. Who wants the gig on Fox? Who wants to run for president next time? I would have said Nikki Haley was running for the next cycle, but what do you think? Right, exactly. Yes, I think that that's spot on. Also, I think Ron DeSantis is also considering that. You know, his people at one point probably said, look, if Trump stays out of this thing, you have a great chance of getting the nomination. But look, Trump got back in, and it turns out that the MAGA loyalists are still committed to him. So now uh, people are sitting down and saying, look, man, you're young. Give yourself another four years. Nikki Haley, the same thing. You know, Chris Christie, I think he still thinks that that's possible. Uh, uh, Vivek, uh, he he wants the Fox gig. He's the guy who wants the Fox gig. Got it. And so, you know, and and the other people we have to concern ourselves about on our side are the the wackos who can peel away just enough, can't possibly win, but can peel away just enough in a state like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. Or Michigan or Michigan. Yes. Thank you for calling. I appreciate it, Steve. Yes, we were talking about that the other day in the context of the the big uh, national meeting of American Muslims and the uh, abandoned Biden contingent. And if you missed the show on Saturday, um, it was really alarming to see uh, the spokesperson for the abandoned Biden group talking about, well, we don't care if we get Trump because at least they'll know where we stand. And I rather think that instead of calling themselves the abandoned Biden hashtag, they should just call themselves the cutting off our noses to spite our faces. But that's rather a long moniker to have a hashtag in front of. Let's look at the texts that are coming in. And if you want to join us by text, you are welcome to do so. 773-763-WCPT. Why aren't they bowing out? Because they all think something is going to happen to Trump and time. Things happen over time. If TFG is fully out of a real candidacy, uh, if, uh, yes, if Trump is out of real candidacy, can't, I can't say candidacy. What is wrong with me? Would begin. So, uh, let's go to, let's see. Let's go to Vivek. Someone has a thought about Vivek. Vivek is absolutely terrible, people. Yes, of course, Fox would hire him. I don't know. I don't know if Fox would hire him, and probably he'd charge a lot. Vivek is the mystery to me. I still can't figure out why he's running in the first place. That one is really flummoxing. 22 minutes after 3 o'clock, if you're just joining us, which of the Republican field do you think should bow out now? And behind whom should the never-Trumpers be throwing their support? Your thoughts. I'm Tory Ryder, in for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tory Ryder. 
It is Joan Esposito's show. Did you even know that Asa Hutchinson, Hutchinson was still on the Republican ticket? I had been unaware. I, I confess. Less than 1% in the polls, and he's hanging in. I don't even know where he's getting the money to fly to the debates. Although, you know, they do have big fare sales periodically. So maybe if he knows when they're going to be, he can get one of those Southwest Airlines. Maybe somebody drives him. I don't know. But they should they should be starting to cull the ranks a little bit. And they should be running out of money. And as for the gentleman who called and, and speculated that uh, Ron DeSantis is planning to run again in four years, I, I don't think so. I will go on record here and say that he he is such a spectacular failure. He is so singularly unattractive as a candidate that somebody will put a sack over his head and haul him away before he runs again. He has reached, what was that, the Peter Principle, where you reach just above your level of competence? Ron DeSantis is even messing up the state of Florida, a state that should basically be all in for him all the time. When you when you hack off Disney, the biggest employer in the state of Florida, when you annoy the cruise ship industry, they're not going to forget either. When all that stuff happens, you, you have messed up so well and truly and effectively that you get, you're going to get nothing from nobody, as the old expression goes. You will have zero. So I, I, I don't think he's – he just seems to have no side view. He's like a car with no side view mirrors. He can't see who's to the right of him. He can't see who's to the left of him. He's got no rear view mirror. He doesn't see who's coming up behind him. He just has this little tunnel vision where he feels like if he just stays the course, whatever that means, whatever his course is, his course is that he's about to be eaten like an hors d'oeuvre by Donald Trump. That's what his course – he is the he's the snack He's Donald Trump's snack. And he will not be back. But even if you aggregated all of these people behind one candidate, even if Nikki Haley managed not to shoot herself in her high-heeled foot, I, I, I clearly the Republican Party is in the grip of um, his Trumpiness. Still, still, I think in the primary, there might be a bolt of lightning that would hit. Did you see the um, the morning analysis today where several people have remarked, several, several analysts of Trump behavior have noted that he's spending a lot of time in Iowa because the, the polling shows that he's doing too well. The polling shows he's doing too well, and so he's afraid everybody's just going to stay home and eat more muffins or whatever they have. You know, more scrambled eggs for the Iowans. If you've ever been to a caucus, that's a legit fear. Have you ever been to a caucus? It's basically survival of of the most... um, If you can crazy glue your butt to a chair, that's how you win a caucus. If it's um, it's a death by boredom, the caucus. I watched 
a group in Minnesota, which is a caucus state. I watched a group of anti-helmet motorcycle fans hijack an entire caucus simply because they would not quit. That was one issue. That was what they cared about. And that's what they did. Here's the text coming in. Um, Progressive Democrat self-identified. I think a Republican ticket of Liz Cheney for president and Adam Kinzinger would be very interesting and tempting. Um, I feel a snowball entering hell right about now. And it's gone. Yeah, there is no way that that would happen. Um, And if, as a progressive Democrat, you could consider a Kinziger-Cheney ticket, then we have really fallen far. Because God bless those two for having spines and moral compasses and ethics. If you ask Liz Cheney, and she has been asked this several times on her book tour, why did she support Donald Trump in two elections, she will quite honestly tell you, because most of the policies he supported were policies she supported. So just cast your mind back there with your time machine. Look at the policies he supported, tax cuts for the rich, loopholes for the real estate, children going into cages, Muslim ban. Yeah, think about all the different ways that he disappointed those of us with with a shred of a heart for the working class, with a shred of a sense of income equality and inequality, with a shred of a sense of how people who are bazillionaires can game the system that... Liz Cheney, I couldn't tell you about Kinzinger because he was in the military and he had an opportunity to meet a lot of people who weren't just like him. But Liz Cheney, bless her heart, raised in an affluent bubble of privilege and power. And I even like her haircut and her voice, but I wouldn't vote for her if she were the last Republican standing. And on the Democrat side, you had some looney tune of the I would still not vote for her. But I'm glad to see that the WCPT uh, folk have open minds. That's to your credit. Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tory Ryder. In for Joan. In a moment, we're going to take a little look at a civil rights activist who made her mark in so many media. And she's now being shown uh, at the Museum of Contemporary Art here. I'm talking Faith Ringgold. More on her in a moment on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. Live, local, and progressive indeed. I am Tori in for Joan. Joan returns next Monday the 8th. She's enjoying, we hope, her vacation. And I'm here to give her some breathing space. Once again, many thanks to Andy at the buttons, Julia at the everything, uh, to Mark and to Matt for making it possible for me to be here with you. We have a remarkable opportunity in Chicago If you get a chance to head into town, there is a show up by one of the great civil rights activists in art. Her name is Faith Ringgold. Her show uh, is up now at the Museum of Contemporary Art. And to talk a little bit about her story and the exhibit, Jack Schneider, who is an artist and curator here in Chicago, 
His own work has been shown from Mexico City to Chicago to Berlin, and uh, clearly he knows his stuff. Welcome, Jack, to WCPT. Thank you for joining us. Of course. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm delighted we finally got somebody. We, we've been working on talking about the show for a while, <laughs> and we really want to do it. Um, tell me a little bit about Faith Ringgold and her story and why her art is so important. Of course. Yeah, so Faith Ringgold is an artist um, who is based in New York City throughout most of her life, and she started making work in the 1960s amidst the civil rights era. And what's really fabulous about this exhibition is that it covers 60 years of her practice. And you can kind of see in the work the way that not only her artistic style uh, evolved and expanded, but also her political concerns. And to sort of look at her work is to look at really a history of racial politics in the United States uh, over the last 60 years. Was she, I actually sort of know the answer to this, a lot of people don't, was she formally mm-hmm. trained in her art? Was she, did she study or did she come mm-hmm. to this herself? Yeah, she absolutely studied. She trained as an artist um, initially in painting and the early works in the exhibition are all painting. Um, but around the 70s, she had this really interesting turn in her practice where she started engaging with textiles. Um, and there was a couple of reasons for this, one of which um, is that uh, it ran in the family. Uh, Ringgold's mother, Willie Posey, was an accomplished fashion designer, seamstress, and uh, pattern maker. So Ringgold actually started collaborating with her mother on works, soft sculpture, she calls them, which are made from textiles, other pieces that resemble tapestries. Um, and at the time, this was in the 1970s, for Ringgold, this was really a feminist statement. Um, she was sort of reclaiming these craft media that have been uh, traditionally associated with, you know, quote, women's work um, and were, in a sense, devalued in the art world um, when compared to something like painting and sculpture. So her using these craft techniques, using textiles is really a way to sort of uh, challenge the way that women's work was valued in the art world at the time. I love the way you put that because I I don't collect much, but one of the things that I do mm-hmm. do collect personally are antique quilts, and I oh, love beautiful. I love don't open my closets, please, uh, <laughs> don't don't do it. Um, because, and I especially love it if they've been used and and maybe have a little wear in them, and sometimes I fix them, and sometimes I leave them as they were, but. It's true that Faith Ringgold takes takes back this um, idea that what women make with their hands in three dimensions and often with a, a practical mm-hmm. purpose, keeping their families mm-hmm. warm and often families that uh, didn't have a lot of money and using everything that is to hand. She takes that back and glorifies it in her in her work. And does she speak about that ever? I mean, I don't know uh, how many interviews she's given about her work, but mm-hmm. did she speak? to the Museum of Contemporary Art about this show when it was going up, about her thoughts on it? Um, she didn't. We didn't conduct an interview with her specifically, but we actually have a section in the exhibition about midway through that has a series of um, video interviews with her uh, dating back 
1972 is the earliest interview. I think we have six interviews ranging from the early 70s up to um, just a few years ago. Yeah, and she talks extensively about the importance of quilting in her work. Um, you know, as I mentioned, her mother was involved with textile work, with quilting. Um, a lot of the works in the shows are quilts. Um, probably Ringgold's best-known format is the story quilt, she calls it, and they are literally quilts um, that include painted images as well as actually written narratives um, on the quilt as well. So you can actually read um, a story and it includes illustrations as well. But um, the importance of quilting, she actually addresses in her work as well. There's this really fabulous piece in the, in the exhibition um, where she's sort of paying tribute to the craft of quilting and how important it has been for black women historically. Mm -hmm. So she has this piece um, that depicts uh, a fictional sort of alter ego of hers alongside numerous uh, important black women throughout history from like Rosa Parks, Sojourner Truth in an actual uh, quilting circle. So it's a quilt that depicts um, all of these women actually making a quilt as well. So it kind of has that meta thing. Um, but it's really, yeah, it's a celebration of the craft of quilting. Um, and it's something she acknowledges in her work as well. I love that. I, I lost a friend a few years ago who was a quilter and, um, mm. I, I always loved the color and the design and she's the one who taught me to look at the stitch work. And she used to mm -hmm. say, if you really want to see, uh, the, the quality of someone's quilting, um, look at the, turn it over to the plain side and look at the stitch work. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that that was such a good metaphor for analyzing life. If you really want to know what's going on, just turn away from the fancy side and look at the simple side and, and see the detail and the elaborate care that goes into uh, mm -hmm. just these tiny little hand stitches. Um, and I, I think that with Faith Ringgold's work, you, you really see the thoughtfulness um, and the attention, as you just pointed out, to, to history. Mm -hmm. In her early paintings, with which I am really not familiar, how much interacting mm -hmm. does she do uh, in paint with the civil rights movement? What are some of the themes that people will see and interact with when they go to the show of her early work? That's a great question. Um, I'll talk a little bit about, actually, so the exhibition is called Faith Wrangled American People, and it's named after a early series of paintings that she made called the American People series. Um, and she made these paintings in the 1960s. So this is sort of amidst the civil rights era and the sort of uh, changes that were happening at that time. And in this series of paintings, it's really wrinkled kind of reflecting on um, the social changes that were happening in New York City. Um, and of course, we think of New York City as this, you know, progressive metropolis. Um, and you might expect that during the civil rights era, this, you know, um, people from minority groups would be sort of more wholly accepted, but she was really kind of pulling back the veil on that a little bit and looking at the ways that racialized hierarchies still persisted in this supposedly progressive place. So you have um, paintings of, um, for example, there's one painting of a group of businessmen um, some are black and some are white. And in this painting, uh, the white figures are sort of literally holding down 
the darker skin figures. And then one case at least actually has is silencing one of the black figures. The white figure has his hand over the black figure's mouth. So it's these sort of um, images like these that are, that are really just a reflection of what was happening around her. At this time, it wasn't, um, her political messaging wasn't as explicit. Um, it was really what she saw as just these words. She was painting what she saw around her. Then, um, of course, you get to a little later in her career, uh, maybe five or so years later, she starts this series called Blacklight. Um, this would be in the late 60s at this point. And in these paintings, she starts to get really explicit politically um, with the inclusion of words, um, with the inclusion of racial epithets, um, things of this nature. So it's, that's, I think, one of the really special things about going through this exhibition is you can actually see the development of Ringgold's political consciousness and how it changed, how it became more pointed um, throughout her career. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jack Schneider, uh, one of the curators at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, talking about their Faith Ringgold exhibit, which will be up through, when will it be up through? February, I think? February 25th. February 25th. Okay. Um, I wanted, since you brought up the subject of her becoming much more pointed in her language and her expression Mm -hmm. in um, in her art, how did that affect the way she sold her art and who represented her and who Mm -hmm. bought her art? That's a really excellent question. I think um, Ringgold is among a group of artists um, that really were not given the recognition that they deserved, like in their own time. Um, This is now, this is this massive exhibition. It's the biggest show of her work ever. Um, And it's really long overdue. She's 94 years old. Um, this is not to say that she hasn't had considerable success throughout her career, but I think it's pretty widely understood that the success that she did have was, um, relatively muted compared to her, uh, male and non-black, uh, colleagues and peers. So this is in a way, um, it's a recognition. It's, it's what you might call like a reparative exhibition, huh. uh, art historically speaking. It's um, an exhibition that is seeking to really like right a wrong um, in how Ringgold has been not as embraced as she should have been throughout her career how, by the art world. How did the museum come to decide that this was something that you were going to center, mm-hmm. feature, put up? What, what went into the decision to show this big exhibition? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's an excellent question. And I should mention as well that our uh, presentation is an adaptation of a show that the new museum in New York put on of Ringgold's work hmm. um, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um So we worked with the new museum uh, to develop this exhibition um, and uh, sort of update it for the city of Chicago. And I think it was really, um, it's a recognition. We decided to do this because Ringgold is really like one of a handful of black women artists that you might encounter in an art history textbook. Um, as I said, like, really, she's not as represented in art historical literature as she should be. And this is something that as a museum we're really invested in doing. Um, 
you know, you can take, for example, the exhibition we did with Howardina Pendel a few years ago, um, a similar story of a black woman artist who is sort of largely overlooked um, throughout her career, but who had this incredible, incredible uh, deep body of work um, that was just like waiting to be shown in a big exhibition like this. And I think uh, Ringgold certainly fits that bill as well. So there was a conversation, um, I'm guessing, then between various curators, someone who had seen the new museum show and thought, we, you know, we have also not fulfilled our obligation to showcase work by these um, meaningful black artists who've had a full mm-hmm. body of work. Mm-hmm. I get it. It's kind of the, the if you want to apologize, boy, this is a real reparation. This is a real, <laughs> that, that, that I have to hand it to you. I would, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I wouldn't say it's an apology. I would say it's a celebration. Okay. Well, I can say, <laughs> why can't I say I'm the talk show host with a big fat mouth. I get to say it. Uh, I think that we should do more apologizing to people like, okay, we Absolutely. were late. We were late to the party. Yeah. We're going to make it up to you now. Uh, who were her patrons in her lifetime? Who made it possible for her to keep working? Mm-hmm. Because obviously, you know, you could be uh, like the artist, I forget her name, the woman who made all those political quilts in Berkeley, and one guy bought all of mm-hmm. them. I cannot think of her name. Uh, nobody really mm-hmm. appreciated her for many, many years, except this one guy who became her de facto patron. Who made yeah. it possible for Ms. Ringgold to keep working? Yeah, it's so important to have uh, patrons who support you. And I'm not, I, I honestly don't know early on who was supporting her. She was certainly supporting herself and she had a very supportive group of artists around her. Um, she has been working with a gallery called ACA Galleries uh, in New York since I believe the early 1990s. So they have been really huge advocates for her work and they were really great partners in developing this exhibition as well. Okay. Um, but really the, the thing that's really fabulous is that these works now, they come from all over. If you come to the museum, you can read on the labels uh, where each piece, like which collection it comes from. Um, and really it's been in the last, you know, five or so years that really the, I think the art world as a whole has sort of come around to and recognize the importance of Ringgold's work. So we have pieces from the Art Institute of Chicago. We have pieces from, uh, the Whitney Museum, uh, MoMA would not lend their work to us, sadly. Ah, they're just, they are so but. full of themselves. Just, I love MoMA. I do. Don't get me wrong. I go to New York. Same, I course. stand there in MoMA and go, oh my gosh. But they really are. They're kind of like the Harvard of museums. Like, because we don't have to should be their motto. Because we don't have to. And exactly. Yeah, literally. Yeah. They don't, we're, we would, could I you, mean, they do. I, yeah. Yeah. To their credit, they do have, I think still they have their really incredible wrinkled work um, up and it's hung adjacent to Picasso's Guernica. So they have like an amazing display of Ringgold in their permanent collection galleries. Um, we would have loved to have it, but I'm glad that it's on view there. So I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to agree with me necessarily, but is it possible that MoMA doesn't lend their work because they're a little thin in the black artist department and when they take something oh. down, they might be accused of not having adequate representation? Would that be a legitimate critique of MoMA? Uh... I think 
I don't know their, their like stats. I don't know their collection well enough to agree or disagree with that, but I will say just in general, and this is actually one of the things that Ringgold has advocated for throughout her career is that museums in the United States have not done a great job of um, adequately collecting and exhibiting work by uh, artists of color, black artists in particular. And actually to bring it back to Ringgold, um, we have a section of the exhibition that's one of my favorites that uh, looks at her activism. And she actually, I believe, I don't know the exact year, but in the 1960s, she staged a protest at MoMA um, asking them or calling upon them to uh, start better representing black artists and women artists. Um so yeah, it's funny that you should say that because that's so <laughs> interesting. Has herself so, called out MoMA on this issue. Tell me more about that protest, if you know. I am unaware of that protest. The first museum protest that I really remember is is the Fran Golden one that uh, with the, the Sacklers. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, oh, Nan Golden. I beg your pardon. Misspoke yeah. against the Sacklers and and their uh, donations and and. I am unaware of the museum politics, although I'm sure mm-hmm. there's a lot of it. Um, could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about some of the protests against museums for not including more artists of color? Certainly, yeah. And I believe um, in the 1960s, Ringgold staged protests at MoMA, Whitney, and I think a number of other museums. And one of those protests is credited as the first time that a protest was ever staged at and like directed to a museum. Um, so she really, and then of course, you, you mentioned Nan Golden, um, her protests against the uh, Sackler funding um, in the last like five years, this has sort of become museums have become these really um, uh, catalyzing spaces for different political movements. And people are really looking to, museums and thinking about uh, their collections and what they represent in a way that maybe we haven't really before. But so it's really amazing for us to be able to uh, look back at Ringgold's career. And she's kind of this, uh, you know, important figure that, you know, attended the first protest at a U.S. museum um, and helped organize it and was a participant in it. So she's really you know, apart from being a highly influential artist, um, I think she's a really a highly influential activist as well. Um, it, it really is. Time, what, what, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Go, go on. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, really, particularly what she was uh, asking for at the time was um, for these museums to really just like start collecting and exhibiting black and Puerto Rican artists. Uh, in their collections and in their exhibition programs. Well, she was right to do it. And because a lot of what these museums were exhibiting now, they have to return because it was stolen from countries where they're. (laughs) So they would have done, they would have been wise to buy the American versions of these things before they had to ship back all the stuff they looted from African countries. (laughs) Uh, Very true. Yes. Well, and so uh, it's interesting you should mention that she also was an advocate for women's art. I remember being at Mm -hmm. the. um, the Johnny Carson funded museum at, at the Nebraska University of Nebraska has an art museum that mm-hmm. is one of these gems that you sort of stumble into and go, holy smokes, that look at all this. And they had 
all all kinds of art by New York mostly um, women artists I'd never heard of, and it was magnificent stuff. So the fact that um, I mean, people know who these women are. They, they're known. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're not. You know, in somebody's attic, nobody's ever heard of them. But it sounds like the work of Faith Ringel was part the art itself, and part the let's make people aware of how these museums are functioning and the ways that they're excluding the art of all kinds of people. So for that, Absolutely. we should also be grateful. Tell me a little bit about the show. When it, you know, what are the hours? How? What are the free days? Because I love it when we yes. give people deals, all that stuff. Absolutely, yeah. So Tuesdays are our free days for Illinois residents. Um, and they tend to be some of our most popular days. I was downstairs. I'm at the museum now. I was downstairs earlier today, and it's absolutely packed with people, which is beautiful to see. Um, The museum is open Tuesday through Sunday. Um, Tuesdays, we're actually open late, so we're open until 9 p.m. on Tuesdays. Every other day, we're open 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, yeah, and the show is up through February 25th, so there's still plenty of time to come see it. And I would just like to point out, because we were talking earlier in the show about people who've made decisions about dating in the new year, you have some lovely social spaces <laughs> where if you meet somebody yeah. on one of those, like, meet online, swipe, right, swipe, left dates, you could actually have a lovely cup of coffee and see an exhibit oh, and stay on a Tuesday night. So just, not that I get to yeah, date and if anymore. The date, but, if the yeah. date is going if the date's going well we have a bar as well oh oh yes there's you know i have to remind my spouse that really you know you can still date even after decades of marriage i forget about that sometimes (laughs) so that that would be a good idea to to remind uh the spousal unit of this uh also i i do know because i attempted and failed to learn spanish over the last couple years if you're a, Uh a city college student you get to go free to the museum anytime um, yes. Yeah. So if you're if you're trying to take an art education course, even if it's just one course, you can go to our Museum of Contemporary Art free, free, free all the time. So mm-hmm. anything else Absolutely. I should be asking or telling people about the show that I haven't asked or said yet? I mean, I just think what I really hope is that people see the show and that they tell their friends and family about it. And I think I've already seen some of this happening. It's already kind of a word of mouth hits. Um, but really what I expected to see was that I wanted adults to come see the show and to come back with their families. But a really fabulous thing happened the other day where I was giving a walkthrough to a gentleman and he told me that he came to see the show on the recommendation of his five-year-old son oh. who had come to see the show with his kindergarten class. Oh my. So I wow. think, um, yeah. Well, Kindergartner, future uh, curator there at a museum. Very nice. Good, all good all around. I'm excited. Well, thank you so much. I hope people will also check out your art as well. I'm going to, because when I read the bio that they sent over, Jack Schneider is like, He's like um, Chicken Man. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Jack Schneider, uh, one of the. Do you remember Chicken Man? You don't remember Chicken Man, do you? I don't. I don't. No. I don't. Well, that was the motto for Chicken Man. (laughs) He's everywhere. He's everywhere. 
Just like that, okay. actually. That's exactly what it sounded like because I'm a professional at these things. So Jack I'll, I'll Schneider, you should. <laughs> Jack Schneider, artist, curator, lives in Chicago. I'll look up your stuff. It's spelled with a C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. And uh, if you missed him in Mexico City or Berlin, he also shows in Chicago. And go see the Faith Ringgold exhibit. We'll probably bang into each other there. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you. It's been fun. It's two minutes before four o'clock. This is when I usually remind you, because I love to remind you, that uh, Patty Vasquez will be in just about an hour from now to drive you home. And also to remind you that there are a lot of people who are back on the road today who haven't been on the road for a while because of the holidays. So extra, extra care here. Um, when you go out and about on the road today. If you want to be part of the conversation in the next half, it's kind of the cultural show today somehow, some way, turned out that way. Next hour, a theater that is particularly diverse in every aspect of its productions. And just as a little additional uh, thing to think about, they have Great. They, I wouldn't say gratefully. They've been they've been gracious in being displaced from their theatrical home because where they used to perform, a bunch of recent arrivals from Venezuela are staying. So there you go. Lots to talk about in a moment on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author Terry Ryder. Yep, still here, five minutes after four o'clock. The Jonas Esposito Show. I am Tori with you, rider like the truck, in for Joan through Friday. Um, if you are a theater fan, you may or may not have come across the Jackalope Theater Company. They do so many different kinds of things. One of the favorite things that I enjoy is they do a piece every year called The Living Newspaper. But to talk about all of the things that they do and their upcoming season and why they are kind of special in Chicago as far as the groups they represent and how they represent them and also what it's like to have to pack up and move because of the influx of migrants to Chicago, all of that, uh, allow me to introduce you to Kaiser Ahmed. He is, and I hope I've got this right, artistic director. Is that your official title, Kaiser? This is, yeah. Okay. okay. Of the Jackalope Theater Company. And we, I just, full disclosure, we've been uh, attending for, gosh, I don't know, years now. So sometimes we love the whole season. Sometimes we love little pieces of it. But it's always interesting. Talk a little bit That's first. Really yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, talk a little bit first, if you would, about the mission of Jackalope. Yes. Uh, we are... You know, in our fifth season, or fifteenth season, so we're a company that's um, been around for uh, since 2008. And the mission of the company is to expand the definition of the American identity by engaging with our communities to produce work that celebrates diverse perspectives. It's a mouthful, but yeah. essentially, we are creating new plays about what it is to be an American. What is the American identity, and all the different, um, all the different shapes it takes. What are what are some of the oh now I need to get this level back to where it was what are some of the different um, groups that you feel are underrepresented that 
um, Jackalope really does a lot of work representing. Yes, you know, we're, if you look across American theater um, and the landscape of new American plays, there's been definitely a, a resurgence, a resurgence of um, diversity and inclusion, and we're seeing a lot more, uh, a lot more stories from communities and from people who identify as American, uh, who are also who also identify with their own uh, ethnic and cultural backgrounds that may or may not be the typical. Um, patriotic American, right? So we're, we're very You're going to need to be a little more specific. Who specifically yeah. is not being shown that you're showing? I mean, I am a South Asian, right? I'm from Bangladesh. Uh, and for me, I, I'm speaking personally, my, my connection to the mission is, is representation in South Asian artists, um, representation in Asian artists. Uh, I also, you know, I think it's very important that we see representation of black artists, especially in Chicago. Uh, it's very easy to look at the, the population of our, of our area and our community and to see the population of Chicago or the population of Illinois or America uh, and to really see like this is the clear picture of the diversity of our people um, do we see that represented in our art um, and if we're not uh, if it feels like we don't and not for me it feels like we don't we are missing so many voices and stories it's a big mission I will admit uh, you know we're trying to get a full representation of the country on the stage it's something that one or two plays can't possibly do but over Years of work, we hope that we're the body of our work uh, shows something that is reflective of the current um, the current representation of, of, of America and of Chicago specifically. So I want to just say that lately I've been seeing not not a jackalope. You've been you've been off. You've been what and on hiatus for a little bit. Is that is that accurate? Not We've been uh, shifting, yes. adapting to the season, each season as we can, going from digital work to outdoor parks work, um, a reduction in productions. That's also been true. We're, we're doing a lot of education work as well. Uh, so pivoting, moving, and yes. responding to the needs of the community. Right. So while that's been going on, I see a lot of theater. And I have I don't know if you're noticing this, and maybe it's just me. I've seen a couple of shows where I think... Okay, great. Points for representation. Total piece of crap theater. Are you? Are, do you feel that any of the standards are are flying out the window in the service of representation? Because I do feel that way. Hmm, it's an interesting question. You know, I think so. At Jackalope, we are focused on new work, right? So right. that is new plays, new voices, and. I'll admit it's true that there has been a lack of representation, diverse representation across American theater in the past. And what we're seeing now is a lot of new voices coming up. And uh, the, for me, <laughs> the best way to see the best uh, of what American theater has to offer is to give as many opportunities as you can for for folks to fail a little bit. And, you know, that's a great thing about Chicago. It's not a space to fail, but a space to experiment, a space to, to, to empower some voices that you may not otherwise hear. And some incredible, incredible voices can come through that. Well, that's a good that, that's a good argument for putting up all kinds of people, even if they are perhaps le- less than what you would ideally hope to see. I just, though, as someone who 
has to maybe bundle up in the winter or at one point had to find a sitter for the kids or a parent to, you know, someone else to stay with them and get my tush out there. I would like the theater to do some of that vetting. And if it's an experimental project, I don't mind then. Like you guys do some really interesting short um, you you do a festival of like short plays. What do you call that? I'm yeah. tr- trying to remember. The living, what. Yeah, the Living Newspapers Festival. Well, uh, short plays. That, yeah, mm-hmm. there was another one too. Was there not, or was it all Living Newspaper? Because I remember seeing what I thought were not just Living Newspaper, some other short pieces that were, um, and and it was billed. I guess this is what I'm trying to get at. It was billed at. These are experimental. These are new. These are cutting edge. We're trying new things. So when mm-hmm. you lower people's expectations, they're apt to walk away going, "Wow, that was really, you know." Considering that this is an experiment, and talk about the Living Newspaper Festival, if you would, a little bit, and and the the rules around that, and how that comes yeah, together. It's a very vibrant festival of new new plays and new work, and a lot of times we we meet artists and, and develop plays, short plays that that go on to have larger life uh, beyond that. But at first, it is a festival, a challenge, a bit. Uh, we issue and connect um, exciting young playwrights from across the city and across the country with newspaper articles that had come out in the recent past uh, from across the country. And there's a bit of an immediacy to this project where a playwright is uh, connected to an article that's about the moment. They have to write um, and respond with an artistic expression that meets that moment. Uh, and there's a time limit to it. You know, news moves fast. Uh, it's, it's about the immediacy of this. So they generate a 10-minute play. We connect them with um, a team of playwrights and, uh, or a team of direct, uh, director and, and actors and they get to work on about a two-week rehearsal process. And and we put it up for one weekend. Uh, and what comes out of it is um, an evening of theater that's all very short form, but also all speaking to the moment we're all in now. Uh, and And some of them are funny, some of them are heartbreaking and dramatic, some of them are not for everybody. They're experimental. Some may take different forms, but, but you get something. I think everybody takes something really strong away from each night. Do the playwrights get to choose their article or do you like assign them an article and then say go or do you give them a choice of three or four, pick your favorite? How do the artists come to be connected mm-hmm. with the article? It's, an, it's a conversation. It always starts with a conversation with the playwright. So there are things that are just in the national psyche that are, are worth speaking about, and we have both identify them. Or if a playwright has a very strong um, passion to speak to a specific article or a story, they'll identify the story, and we can help them um, not just source an article, but a family of articles that may tell that story. Uh, so we'll, we help dramaturgically, but it is the, uh, it is the playwright's um, passion and choice. That's so interesting. I didn't, I was completely unfamiliar with the process. So thank you for shedding some light on that. When you think of plays that have been put up at Jackalope that really are on subjects or using, um, uh, plots that would be perhaps unexpected, what are some of the ones that stick out in your mind as like, well, you know, I never thought we'd be doing a play about fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, I never thought we'd be doing a play about the public schools, Chicago public school system before we did with exit strategy, which one is just one that sticks out prominently in my mind as um, a play that uh, was 
was just so beautiful, and and it also met the moment of the city too, who was uh, I think teachers were on strike that uh, during the time of this play, not just being written but also produced and performed. Um, and we had a lot of educators come to see the play, and and got a lot of attention around that play. But it humanized a very um, a uh, specific time in Chicago history uh, at a at a school, a mythical, uh, you know, fictional school, but is it does take from a lot of inspiration from uh, Chicago schools that have closed, uh, and so it's a story of the teachers and uh, and some of the students who are fighting to keep the school open. Um, uh, and it was well, it was brilliant. It was so good. The actors were phenomenal, uh, and we ran that show all summer. It was a lot of fun. I love how in love you are with the work that you do. That I think is contagious. If you're just joining us, uh, you're hearing Kaiser Ahmed. He's the artistic director of Jackalope Theater, um, which is on the north side of Chicago, and formerly in the Armory Building. One one of the fun mm-hmm. things about going to your show was you got to watch the circus arts people practicing. If you were lucky. So it was like, yeah, come see a play. And while you're at it, watch some people on the trapeze, something a lot of theater companies do not offer. And now what's become of your space and where are you and what's coming up? Yeah. You know, we adore our armory venue. We've been there for, had been there for 10 years and it is, you know, the trapeze school, New York trapeze school is uh, in view uh, before you get to the lobby. And it, it is so great to be in a a community center and a building that is so vibrant and full of everybody from the community. So you may be into trapeze and not into theater at all, but we're in the same spaces. Uh, and I think that's really exciting about that, about the armory. So right now we are temporarily, um, uh, temporarily split up in our, in our home. So the armory is, is all still there. Our venue, our offices, our stage and our, and our storage is all still there, uh, and sealed up. And every six months or so is when the city will reevaluate, um, whether or not the building can open back up fully to the parks and have us return. And what, what's then. going on in there right now? She asks, knowing it, a little bit of that answer okay. ahead of time. Yes. Yep. Over the summer, we, uh, the building for the second time throughout the pandemic, uh, has, uh, turned itself over to become a shelter. So, uh, in the first time, but back in 2020, I think it was, or 2021, it was for homeless shelter. Um, the building was turned over and we were just place for a little bit uh, and then came back and currently it's being used for uh, migrant overflow from asylum asylum seekers uh, and they're in there every uh, or indefinitely for the time but um, we will see it really all depends on a lot of forces that are a lot larger than jackalope so yes. in the meantime where uh, we are wonderfully supported by the park district and we're a partner with them and have been for 10 years in the armory and that partnership has um, given us the support to relocate our office and rehearsal space and class teaching space to the Loyola Park Fieldhouse. And then our venue for performances, we look like, will be at Burger Park uh, Coach House Theater, which used to host the Theater on the Lake series each summer. So it's a venue we've also performed at, too, uh, in that series. And it'll be great to, to be there for um, the foreseeable future. It's like you want to put your whole company on roller skates. You going from here to there with yeah. knapsacks. That's a lot. Oh, we're an Edgewater company. We're yeah. 
Yeah, we're right along the lake, luckily. So maybe we'll get a fleet of a fleet of boats and just scoot up and down the coast. There's um, an idea, or a riverboat yeah. tour from yes. just up and down the up and down the lakefront. There, it's kind of a that would be fun, actually. The, oh, that would be a lot of fun. I think this is a great idea. <laughs> well, it's up to you. You make theater happen. You can probably make boat performances happen. I don't see why not. If people can I live don't. on houseboats in the middle of the San Francisco Bay or Portland, Oregon, then why can't you have a floating theater? It would work. You heard it here. You heard it here. Reach out to Jackalope at Jackalope Theater with your ideas. We can make this happen. Let's talk about the season to come. Uh, what have you got up your collective sleeves for the season to come? It's a great question. We are... You know, it's been an adventurous few months um, resettling ourselves in our new space, but that has been our primary uh, focus is just resettling uh, where our spaces will be and where we can perform. Um, we are have just announced uh, the Midwest premiere of The Smuggler, and this is a one-person show um, that our, uh, some of our ensemble members are coming together to put on uh, here at Burger Park Cultural uh, the Cultural Center. And so this will open in February and March. It's a one-person show that's like a lyrical, uh, it's a lyrical monologue, essentially, and um, a conversation, that a story that gets told to you by a bartender. And I won't say too much more there. The, the monologue of the play takes quite a quite an interesting turn in a journey, but it's a very, it's going to be a very intimate, small, small house experience. One person show at Burger Park against the lake. And we're opening in February and March for a limited, limited 13 uh, performances, I believe. Now you did mention that a bunch of the company have come together to do this. Has the company written the piece or are there different people taking this one person performer role? Or how do you mean that, that the company has created this? Uh, in that, uh, our former artistic director and co-founder with me, uh, Jackalope Peters, Gus Maneri, uh, who had just um, come back from running uh, the Book It Repertory Theater in Seattle. So he's back in Chicago and uh, is coming back to direct this play, uh, direct this play, which will be our first time, first piece coming back after this relocation period. And who wrote it? This is written by Ronan Nolan. He's... Um, phenomenal Irish writer who's uh, uh, um, in America, a teacher in America, but has had some great success with this play. It's just been really infectious across the country. Um, And uh, again, I won't say too much more, but it is a play about what it means to be a citizen uh, in America. Well, Um, see, you've really just, I mean, we would call this burying the lead here in journalism. I mean, when you say Irish American bartender telling you a story that 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 will sell out immediately because who has not, it's a stereotype that the Irish are wonderful storytellers and yet it is in the culture very much so. So who Mm -hmm. wouldn't want to sit and be told, and do we get to drink through, through this? Are they, are they serving or, or just uh, pretending. Uh, that uh, we have some hopes. We have some hopes. We are in the park district, so there'll be some some limitations uh, with this initial run. But it is it's a story you want to hear with the glass in your hand. Absolutely, and okay. I think that'll happen. Okay, and, and um, it's also yes. I'll display this as well. It's also in rhyme. Oh. Well, so is Shakespeare. So what's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. We've got no problem yeah, with definitely. rhyming stories as long as it doesn't just sort of bonk you over the head with it. So what else would you like us to know 
about jackalope in general. And I mean, I can tell you one of the things that I've noticed in your non-traditional um, productions is the casting is also non-traditional. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. The casting is non-traditional. Uh, you know, actually, could you ask, could I ask you to ask a bit more? Uh, you want me to ask you more about what is non-traditional? Yes. Uh, sure. Um, you have people of various ethnic groups uh, as family units without making any reference. So it's just kind of accepted that if you're acting, you're acting. Um, there are trans actors I've seen upon your stage. Um, I have seen every kind of I've seen people who appear to be um, less. How do I put this? Less polished, but more enthusiastic. Um, newer actors. That that's what I mean. I think that means our mission is working. I think that means that uh, the the effect that of our work is, is uh, that we want to be had uh, is, is being had. Uh, we hope that our audiences are seeing trans actors on stage as well as you know, connecting to that experience of their trans coworkers who, uh, and what their personal life and what their experiences are. Every time we show, um, perspectives and people on our stage in a small intimate room with our audiences, they, they naturally develop a stronger empathy for those people and for everybody in their lives. Uh, I love watching those little connective moments happen, uh, in our audiences and in during the play and also in post-show discussions, you can see, perspective widen. Uh, it is the main reason I do what I do is to see those moments happen. Huh. Really? That's the main reason. Absolutely. That's so interesting. For me personally. For you personally. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's not just having everybody stand up and clap, huh? That that doesn't do it for you? I, I, <laughs> I see because me, I'm in a little soundproof booth. Nobody stands up and claps around here. If I were you, that would do it for me. I'd be like, <laughs> let me take a bow, please. That's what I would like mm-hmm. to do. How did you find yourself um, running the Jackalope? Since you're talking about the former artistic director coming back, it also is very mm-hmm. collegial. And you mentioned your own history, um, ethnically, culturally, how how on earth did you come to be performing a variety or uh, choosing a variety of theater works in the Edgewater neighborhood of Chicago? Yeah, we've been, you know, we came out of Columbia College, Chicago. So this was our uh, uh, directors uh, in a directing class in 2008, um, and our mentors, who were the directing teachers, Susan Padveen, Sheldon Patinkin, David Biscavich, uh, had really encouraged a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot out of us. Um, so this is myself, uh, Gus Maneri, who I just mentioned, and AJ Ware, uh, were the three directors in this class, and. Coming out of that class, coming out of that college experience, we knew that we wanted to create together, to direct plays together and uh, support each other in, in what each other wanted to direct. So this was the foundation, the beginning of starting a company. But it started one show at a time. Uh, our first play was written by Andrew Burden Swanson, uh, who's a co-founder as well and still with the company, of course. And he's um, uh, written our first play called Last Exodus of American Men. And the three of us, Four of us all kind of worked worked our tails off for that one. I um, was our first artistic director for the first several years, uh, and then we transitioned uh, artistic directorship to AJ Ware, who ran the company wonderfully for several more years, five years, and then we transitioned to Gus Maneri, and now we've transitioned back to me. So there's been regular transitions as well in the company of um, of who's leading. 
I just love it that you came out of the Columbia College scene because mm-hmm. that college has been such an asset in the broadcast profession and theater. And I, we just had somebody on last week from the Sarah Siddons Society that funds a scholarship there in the arts. Yeah. It's been, um, pretty fantastic to, to watch it unfold, and it gives me joy to hear that that was part of your foundation story and that your Chicago roots are so deep and that you actually get back people that we send off to Seattle. So that's nice to hear, too. Yeah, some they can't leave Chicago for too long. <laughs> Tell me a little quickly with the time we have left about your educational programs. Absolutely. We... You know, we like I mentioned, we're an arts partner with the Park District, um, and part of that gets to be the opportunity to directly uh, engage with our community. So through the park, uh, through the park that we are at. So previously at the Broadway Armory, we were providing arts classes, free classes for kids and adults, uh, acting classes and play production classes, writing classes, uh, as well um, as running a. Um, a lab, playwrights lab. So this is for adult uh, playwrights, um, professional and young professional playwrights who are uh, developing first drafts of their plays. Uh, that one is by tuition, and that one is um, normally led by some phenomenal playwright, playwrights uh, in the company. Uh, but uh, typically, we we really encourage, and we're currently encouraging a lot of um, a lot of enrollment. I hope uh, at Loyola Park. This okay. is our new location. Yeah, right. So that's where we have our class space and office space. It's a and nice space. I, I still uh-huh. remember um, taking exercise classes there. It's a really it's a fun space and and oh, has yeah. parking has parking. So um, uh, yes, I have to add. You can't beat. Absolutely. And yes. there's an elevator. Yeah. It's great. Accessible. Thank you so much, mm-hmm. Kaiser Ahmed, uh, Artistic Director of Jackalope Theater. You can find them online. Just Google Jackalope Theater and they'll come right up. Best of luck with the new season. Thanks for spending time with me on WCPT. For Jonas Bazito, I'm Tori Ryder. We are live local progressive. If you ever want to reach out to the people that you hear on the air, I usually will connect you. But if you can't find them, just get a hold of me via my socials. You can find me on most of them, except for TikTok, which just confuses me. You know, those cartoon characters with the little stars going around the head after they get bonked with a hammer. That's me with TikTok. So just don't don't even look for me there. It's uh, just about 4.30. And in a moment, we're going to talk about something that we've all complained about, gerrymandered voting maps. It looks like they're finally going to go away in our neighbor to the north. And we'll hear more about that in just a moment on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. 4.32, just about a half an hour away from driving it home with Patty Vasquez. And I am so excited to actually have someone who can speak to something that's been, it's always driven me bananas, the whole gerrymandering thing. And it looks like they're actually going to make it go away in Wisconsin. This is, this would have been unthinkable. But I'd like to introduce you now to Pat Reyes, president of SEIU Wisconsin, which is what? State Employees International Union. Is that right? I never know what the heck it stands for. Could you welcome Pat, by the way? (laughs) What does SEIU stand for again? 
Service Employees International Union. Employees. Union. What? Union. Union. Oh, thank God. SEIU. Service Employees International Union. Thank goodness. We have close to a million members. And you're here in Illinois as well, I know, for sure, all over the place. We are here. We are there in Illinois. Um, we. I am president of SEIU Wisconsin. I am a member-elected president, so I continue to work as a nurse at the hospital in Madison. And then I am president also, so... I have a busy life. You never sleep. Never sleep. But the SCIU has <laughs> been active in uh, trying really uh, making it happen, the, the the phasing out or the removal or the war on gerrymandering. Talk a little bit about how it's been uh, and now what's happening, if you would, please. Sure. Um, I think it helps to understand what gerrymandering on a whole is. And so what happened many, you know, well over 10 years ago, is that um, the Wisconsin Constitution says that um, districts for voting power, so, you know, our, our Senate districts, federal districts for Senate, for House, for State, um, House and Senate, um our districts are supposed to be concurrent according to the Wisconsin Constitution. And um, the Republicans went in and adjusted those maps. And currently, the maps do not have um, voters next to each other. So they went in and they, they picked pockets of... of um, Democrats and pulled them into highly Republican areas, and they picked pockets of Republicans and pulled them into um, other areas so that the Republicans could control and choose who was elected by um, silencing a lot of the Democratic votes. So they actually went in and did some very undemocratic activities. So when you start looking at the maps in Wisconsin, it looks like somebody had a broken etching sketch and just drew lines really nilly across the state. It really is and remarkable. So have- I, those maps, do you, do you have the old map up where someone, if they wanted to, could take a look at it? Because I have seen it and it's just, it looks it looks like somebody in a, a psychiatric institution for therapy was asked to draw a map and they, you know, little voices <laughs> told them to put it over here, put it over there. Uh, where could someone <laughs> see the old the old map of, of the gerrymandering of Wisconsin? Well, it's not even the old map. It is right now the current map. Oh, my goodness. Things, although the vote, the Supreme Court made a decision, um, there is a process that has to go through to get non-gerrymandered maps. Ah, which brings us to the activities of the SCIU and where we are. And by the way, just as a point of history, I saw an exhibit in uh, Omaha, I believe it was, on the history of voting. And they uh, they talked about where the term gerrymander came from. 
it came from, I believe, Massachusetts. There was a governor who who created these bizarro districts. And so they were shaped like one of them was shaped like a salamander. So they called it a gerrymander. And you probably already knew that, but I hadn't known that till I went to the show. So I'm just putting that out there so people know where the word came from. Oh, really? I had not known that. Yeah. The district that he wanted, the district was so bizarre. It looked like a salamander with like a tail and a body and like little legs and toes. And (laughs) and so as just to make it clear how absurd it was, they called it the gerrymander. And the term has stuck. Um, so, yeah, some of the districts, you think of them as being in nice little squares. And is it not true that Wisconsin actually voted to, to end gerrymandering uh, and then they their vote was sort of shouted down by their very own legislature? Is that accurate? I know some states that's happened. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I know in the last several years... Um, we had gerrymandered maps, and the Supreme, and there was a decision. The governor gave an alternative map that was not strictly, that was not necessarily political, but it was much more fair and met the Constitution's requirements. And then the Republicans um, filed a lawsuit against it, and it went to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court chose a much more radical map than what either the Republicans or the Democrat or, or the governor had proposed. Oh, wow. So they, they, they said, you know what, this isn't even nutty enough. We're going to make it worse. Yeah. Oh, boy. And if you look at some of the maps, um, the, um, you can go to, what is it, my dot. LWV or my League of Women Voters dot org forward slash Wisconsin. Okay, and they have multiple maps on there that show different different choices or, or different alternatives of of the different maps. So the reason um, this 42, is changing, hold, hold on. So the reason this is changing now to your point about the, the former Supreme Court of Wisconsin, as we all have watched, the Supreme Court in Wisconsin has, has evolved since the last election. What, what exactly, for those who don't know, what has happened? And so why is there this opportunity for change now? Well, our, our Supreme Court justices are voted in. And um, when we have statewide elections, we see a much different um, political leaning than when we see when you have the different districts and counties voting and that are not, you know, so when you're statewide, you don't have the, the full gerrymander effect versus Versus when you have smaller districts that can be adjusted and shuffled. Right. You know, and pick and chosen where you're taking which votes from where. Right. You know, we have, we have some districts that have an island of people 30 miles away in one neighborhood because that neighborhood leans one direction or the other. Yeah. And it, that does it's... not make it a concurrent, connected district. It's amazing that the that the populace 
in in the service of having one party rule in Wisconsin hasn't written risen in umbrage because who can actually represent a district where it's it's something like out of the Wizard of Oz? Half you go this way, half you go that way. I mean, it's the the and populace. And that's been part of the issue, you know. And part of it is you know you have to get people voting. So if you know if you don't have you know the cur- the current gerrymandered maps really nullify a lot of workers' votes, a lot of the minorities, a lot of, you know, the the Latino, the Black, the Indigenous, the LBGQ, a lot of those votes have been buried under tons of Republicans. So even if they're voting pro, wonder, you know, if they're voting liberal, their votes are never heard because they have been gerrymandered out of a voice. Yeah, it's really kind of amazing. It would be like if it, it would be like if you were able to make soup by just taking all the carrots and putting them on one side of the pot and all of the mushrooms and putting them on the other side of the pot and you would never really have soup. You would just have various collections of vegetables. And I guess right. I'm calling the Republicans a bunch of vegetables. So take that Republicans. <laughs> Instead I of, did not say that. I said that. So instead of having a representative soup of like, you know, the Democrats participate, the Republicans participate, they have, I loved your metaphor of having them buried under the Republicans. I, it's a horrible thought, but that's essentially what's happened in Wisconsin. And you see how unfair it is, as you pointed out, in statewide elections where you do get some Democrats elected specifically right now, your, your Supreme Court justice and and your governor. So it's clearly right. an artificial imposition on the populace of Wisconsin, which is now, thanks to the new Supreme Court, about to go away. What did the Supreme Court decide? The Supreme Court decided that they needed to, that the maps were unconstitutional. And that um, new maps need to be drawn and ready to go before the April primaries. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Stand by, Ms. Reyes. Uh, this is Pat Reyes. She is the, um, Pat Reyes is the president of the SEIU in Wisconsin. And if you're lucky and you're sick at the same time as being lucky, she might be your nurse. She does both things. She, as we've already agreed, never sleeps. This is WCPT. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan Esposito. More in a moment. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tori Ryder. I am. And Pat Reyes is with me this half hour talking about the ungerrymandering of the state of Wisconsin. And I did take a moment, and thank you for your text as well, to look up details of the term gerrymander. Uh, and, and what I learned from the Oxford Dictionary, it was in the early 19th century, the governor of Massachusetts was Governor Elbridge I would have pronounced it Jerry, but the gentleman or woman who texted says it's Gary. Nevertheless, uh, there was supposedly a similarity between a salamander and the shape of a new voting district on a map drawn when the governor was in office in 1812, the creation of which was felt to favor his party. Shocking news, right? And and the map uh, shape had claws, fangs, wings, 
<laughs> and it was published in the Boston Weekly Messenger with the title, The Gary Mander. So there you go. Uh, Pat, thanks again for sticking with us. So the Supreme Court of Wisconsin ruled that this uh, map violated the state's constitution because the the districts were not contiguous. They were like Superman. They were able to leap over tall buildings in a single bound and come down to unify disparate communities so that the Republicans would always win. Is that accurate? That, that that is very true, all except for in a couple of areas um, where they just couldn't mesh it, and those tend to be some of the urban areas. But they still, you know, sort of like um, would take would would pocket different citizens and pull them out of that area to to minimize and and unfairly elect officials. So that the officials were pretty much picking who was going to be in the House and the Senate of Wisconsin instead of the citizens choosing. And that's where it's completely wrong. You know, we live in a democracy where our votes need to count. And talk a little bit about what the SEIU did um, on on so many fronts to, to help bring about a situation where this can change. Well, there's there's been a lot of work. Um, we've been leading into it for for a long time. Um, you know, the Walker um, legislation that took away union rights um, for our public sectors um, was was some of the first indicators because we couldn't get that turned around, and we couldn't couldn't even with a Democratic governor get that out. So that our um, public sector workers can be unionized again, um, you know. And, and many of people remember a lot of the um, the striking and rallying around the Capitol in twenty eleven. What was it? Early twenty eleven in January. That was very impressive. Where you had hundred thousands of people in the middle of winter staging rallies around the Capitol and. Um, so we, you know, we've been working towards that change. Um, we've been working with with politicians. We've been working with workers. We have been knocking on doors, um, knocking on doors, getting people to vote to try to help push the envelopes and, and make it harder for the Republicans to win in those districts. Um, we've been working with an organization called the Fair Map Coalition. Um, you know, so there's multiple grassroots groups trying to make changes so that so that the voters can be heard. You know, when you have elections where you have a governor that that wins an election by a substantial amount, but yet you can't win a House or a Senate, there's an issue. Yeah. So, you know, when you when you have when you have um when Tammy Baldwin was elected, she won by like 11 percent, but yet sections of her district could not get Democratic um, or liberal-leaning um, 
seats in either the House or the Senate on the state level. Do, do, so you know there's an issue when yes. that's happening. Do you do you anticipate that there's any avenue open now to the Republicans to fight back against this redistricting? As, do they have a hope in heck? Yes, of, there is. All right. How, what will that look like? Well, I know they, they've already appealed to the Supreme Court and asked them to to um, take back that the um, current districts are are unconstitutional, which I thought was sort of funny. Um, <laughs> yes, because have, the state Supreme Court has clearly observed that they have, you know, strange leaping districts that are just, if you look at them, they're an affront to any common sense districting. Right. And then you, you know, they have tried to um, get it to default back to the legislature so that, um, you know, you get one try. And if that doesn't it to make math and if those aren't uh, agreed upon as being appropriate, then the legislature gets to decide. And it's like, wait a minute. The legislation hasn't been able to create fair math for well over the last 10 to 10 to 15 years. What makes them think they can suddenly do that now? Is it possible that the Supreme Court would take such a case? I thought they kept kicking these cases back to the states. I thought that was what they just recently did out east in, in, and overturned some of the efforts for fair voting there by saying, no, no, your state gets to decide. And if you don't think it's fair, tough bananas. Well, and, and that, that is, I think, what is appropriate is you need the states to be the, the, the decision makers in that. You know, elections are, are state-based. They're not federally based. And that's, you, see, you see issues with that in multiple areas. Um, because, you know, if you have to allow the states to have the autonomy to, to run their own elections. But, well, but it's, you need it's, the, it's the interesting because sometimes that goes in favor of democracy and sometimes it appears that it doesn't. But what, let's also move to the issue of people who are saying that the problem now is this Supreme Court justice and they're trying to get her to recuse herself for having commented on this case before. Uh, obviously, she didn't. What What is the status of that effort now? Well, at this point, I think that's been, been um, they're waiting to see how things happen and whether or not they can get the Supreme, the Republicans are trying to get the Supreme Court to sway. And, you know, we are hoping and will continue to fight um, if they keep insisting on um, having a judge protege, which recuse, because she really has not made a firm, you know, she she is a very fair-minded judge and looks at things compared to the Constitution and not compared to political leanings. And that is really what we ask our Supreme Courts, both on the state levels and the federal levels, to do, is to not to drop the political stuff and really look at it compared to the intention of the Constitution, and where we are getting in trouble on both of those levels is when they allow politics to get involved.
Yeah, are we are we thinking Clarence Thomas here at all? I'm just wondering. Clarence Thomas, I I, I'm looking at him. Well, well, I'm not. I'm not looking just at him. I'm looking at at um, multiple um, federal Supreme Court justices who are not necessarily going by the Constitution. Some of the decisions that they had, in my opinion, that they have made, have not been. From my understanding of the Constitution and a lot of the legal minds that I have asked about it, um, decisions that necessarily support the Constitution, they tend to tear it apart. So, so are you at this point, as we, as we speak today, if I asked you on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being we are absolutely going to get rid of the gerrymandered districts in the state of Wisconsin, and one being we're going to end up right back where we were before I have no hope, where are you in ter- and your fellow union members in terms of optimism that really you will get representative government in the state of Wisconsin now? I'm really thinking it's close to eight or nine, but, you know... Um you know, just just in October, uh, Representative Voss was trying to institute the Wisconsin type of legislation for gerrymandering, which was not any better than what you know, which which was a joke too, because it again relies on legislation to make the decision, and it needs to be the voters deciding who's in the offices to make sure that. Those representatives are held accountable for the decisions they make. And if they make poor decisions, then they deserve to be voted out. Well, and with the current gerrymandered map, cannot vote out a poorly performing legislative person. It does kind of make you wonder if they've ever read Catch-22. I mean, it's like it's a pure Catch-22. Well, if, you know, if the maps aren't fair, um, then we put them in to to elect a representative legislature, then we just kick it back to the legislature. It's hilarious, really. You want to sort of gift wrap a copy of Catch-22 for every single Republican in the Wisconsin State House and go, here, your name goes here. Um, I, I uh, really appreciate the time that you're giving. I know how busy you are, Pat. So thank you for the work that your union is doing to keep this issue front and center. I know that the gerrymandered maps have cost union workers in Wisconsin, um, not just in an abstract way, but in a very real way at your dinner table. So I wish you every kind of success and you'll be seeing me before the presidential. I'll be walking precincts because they don't need me in my bright blue state. And you'll let us know here at CPT what else we can do. Sounds good. Thank you so much. That's Pat Rays with the SEIU, the president of Wisconsin SEIU. In a moment, you get to hang with Patty Vasquez. She'll drive you home. I will be here tomorrow at 2. Thank you so much for being with me today. It has been a true pleasure. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito on WCPT, live local and progressive. Thank you.